another episode of Down to Earth Cornell Conversations About. In this episode, we are going to discuss the science engagement process through media. This is Dr. Danielle Eisman, a visiting lecturer in the Department of Communication at Cornell University. There is a traditional model in science and technical communications, which suggests that if you put the information out there from experts, people will listen. You could think of this as the, the field of dreams approach, if you like. Another way scientific information is shared is through the media. How this process works is when a new study is published in an academic article, which is behind a paywall, oftentimes a university press or relations office will summarize that work in a non-technical language and then send it, send it out to media outlets for publication. A writer or reporter may pick it up, write a news article about it in the hopes a news outlet will pick it up. The reporter may interview the researchers or other experts to provide some wider context and add some interest to the article. The reporter or writer will then typically submit the article to the editor for review. The editor then may alter some aspects of the story or change the headline to make it more attention-grabbing. The problem with this process is that not many people read past the headline or byline of an article. The writing style of most traditional media articles is that you give the good stuff up front to convince the reader to keep reading. So in some cases, you can get the gist of an article in a few seconds as opposed to digging into the details of the article or even going beyond that to see the original study or look at the credibility of the researchers and the writer. One example is from a study conducted a few years ago about the sleep quality people have when they allow a pet to sleep on a bed. When the study was shared, the study was drilled down to a headline that stated women sleep better next to dogs as opposed to next to a human. This conclusion was of course an exaggeration but captured people's attention. It was shared widely but the overall conclusion from the original research paper stated our findings do not show a strong relationship between pet ownership status or bed sharing conditions and sleep quality as assessed by the Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index, or the PSQI. Although according to this measure, a high percentage of study participants did experience sleep quality deficits. They also concluded that people with dogs tend to have a more regimented schedule, which could explain the lower disruptions in sleep. The survey participants that had cats and human partners reported more disturbances throughout the night compared to participants with dogs. We see these types of examples come up again and again. For instance, Joseph Stiglitz, a well-known economist, wrote a book review in the New York Times about a newly published book written by a climate change denier. Stiglitz explains the areas of the book which are inconsistent with scientific consensus, but the title of the article was, are we overreacting to climate change? This resulted in a rather active Twitter discussion where Professor Catherine Hayhoe explained why this type of clickbait title is problematic in addressing serious issues. It was pointed out within the thread that Stiglitz most likely did not choose the title of the article, and it is common practice to title an article with a question. It was further pointed out that when this tactic is used, the answer is always no. This highlights the very different approaches scientists who communicate compared to science communicators. This can lead to problems, though, as question headlines are often interpreted as uncertain, compounding existing myths and misunderstandings among the public. Even today, there was, uh, today is July 7th, I believe. Yeah. 
Um, so there was a, a trial study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in the research letters section, which showed a slight increase in carbon dioxide levels in blood among children wearing a mask for three minutes. Of course, as you dig a little deeper and look at, at comments from additional experts, you see the holes that are um, existing within the trial and, and within the letter that was reported in JAMA. Um, for one, the study was published in the research letter, so it had not undergone the rigorous peer review process that it typically would go through if published as a full article. Also, the study was conducted with 45 participants ages 6 to 17 years of age. The rise in CO2 levels is most likely explained by the brief time period. Remember, the study was conducted for three minutes with each participant, and people need a little bit of time to adjust to the new conditions. So wearing a mask for three minutes doesn't allow for um, the breathing to accommodate to a new condition. So it's likely that after or if you were to measure the CO2 levels of the participants after a much longer time period, those CO2 levels would go down. Also, the, the level of increase in CO2 was minimal and not a concern for child health or pulmonary functions. Lastly, a significant number of people, such as surgeons, doctors, and nurses, have worn masks from anywhere to 12 to 16 hours a day without any kind of impairment. I've even experienced this myself when I used to work in medical research and I had to wear a mask all day um, and never had any problems with a mask on, even as someone who suffers from asthma. So the way that we try to engage the public with scientific information should really consider the ways in which information is misconstrued among the public. Is the attention-grabbing headline worth the potential misinterpretation? Are scientists and researchers conveying their work in a manner that is clear for many public audiences to understand? And how do we collectively ensure that process reduces the likelihood of misinformation being shared to the world. Now let's see what Brianna and Daniel have to say. But first, I finally remembered to record introductions for them. So here you go. Sciences with a mind in human development. Um, I'm also on the Cornell Women's Fencing Team. And I'm so happy to be part of this podcast. And I've never taken a science communication course, but it's definitely interesting to learn as I go and work with amazing people. And hopefully I can take a class with um, Dr. Eisman in the future. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Um, great. Okay, awesome. So I will stop recording. Um, so the science engagement process, what'd you, what'd you think about that? Um, I thought it was interesting, but I was actually like, really like 
interested in like how can you like further explain the idea that um nothing in science is proven true Mm. and um like why are you not able to justify like that something is true um what what's like the steps that I guess my real question is like why (laughs) (laughs) um why why nothing is ever true yeah and everything's just false well proven false so it's um it comes down to the scientific method which uh which you brought up the last time that your your understanding of science is through the scientific method so you know if you think about how hypotheses are created so you have the null hypothesis which is you know your experiment didn't work as planned so the null hypothesis is accepted um or you have your your testable hypothesis. So it, it either worked out as you had anticipated or it did not work out as you had anticipated. And, and so because that's kind of that process that dictates science and, and how scientists view the world, it's, um, it's always based on mounting evidence. And so the more and more often your your hypothesis or your educated guess is correct, then the more confidence you have that that concept is not false. But as you know, and as we often see with science is that as new discoveries are made, then we start to reject certain theories or certain ideas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like everybody, what, Well, I don't know the year because my brain doesn't remember dates, but, uh, (laughs) but, you know, I mean, what, hundreds of years ago, 500 years ago, people thought that the earth was flat and not, not talking about the flat earthers today, but, you know, that, that was kind of the, the consensus was that the earth was flat. And then as the, um, as people's understanding of, of physics and astronomy advanced, then they were able to prove that that was false. And so, and that happens over and over again in, in science, because we're always learning new things. We're advancing, we're um, gaining an understanding. And so if you say something is, is true, then it's kind of absolute and you, you kind of stop there. You're like, okay, mm-hmm. this, this, there's nothing else to explore about that. But if it, if things can only be proven false, then it pushes you to keep questioning and keep exploring and, and keep testing so that you can be as certain as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause I know like in my stats class, we would say we fail to reject the null rather than like the null is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's where there's a lot of, and I think we talked about this a little bit last time too, because a lot of people got angry or were questioning the the research by the CDC and the World Health Organization because they kept changing their guidelines. But that's because the the science had to catch up. So, you know, they were testing and testing and testing and people want answers right away but that's just not how scientific inquiry works it takes a long time to understand 
what's happening, especially when it, it comes to how disease is spread and how it works in the body. And, and um, you know, I mean, that's just one example. Everything is pretty complicated, but. <laughs> yeah, like I feel like people often think that like, when something's like published, it's like absolute and that is 100% true. And if it changes, then like science is a hoax and it's not correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess that's like something that like we need to like understand as consumers of scientific information that things can change with more research. Mm-hmm. I guess like my lingering question is this idea that something can only be proven false. Is that kind of a contradiction to what the burden of proof should be on like like, for example, I can make some outrageous claim, like go upstairs and say, hey, I just saw Elvis in my kitchen. Uh, prove me wrong. And because I guess you can't technically prove me wrong. It's like, like, I mean, I'm just saying, it, doesn't it seem like you could kind of just make any outrageous claim? And if it can't technically be proven false, like, like, I'm, is there kind of a contradiction with like burden of proof and this idea that I guess you can really only prove something false, but not true? Hey. Yeah, it, it's it, it ties into the concept of um, replicating studies, which we don't do enough. And we, we say this all the time in, in scientific research that we need to replicate studies over and over again to make sure that you know the original results are and the and the conclusions follow the same logic and that you can repeat what somebody else did and get the same results so that you have more and more confidence and it doesn't happen enough in science and it's um and that's where you start to see some um disagreements about some of the the different disciplines so like I did my uh, my PhD research, I used evolutionary psychology. And because we're trying to make these estimations about human behavior based on the way that people evolved, you can't really prove that false. Uh, and so a lot of people will reject some of those conclusions or theories because you cannot prove it false. Um, because it, it's in some of the cases it is outrageous claims, uh, but it, it's you know it's looking at human behavior today and thinking about okay, well that's counterintuitive. What led up to that type of behavior? Why do we see that over and over again? So there are theories based on human behavior and then also uh, primate behavior because we're linked to that. And so evolutionary psychologists will say, well, we're able to study these behaviors now because we have these other models. Whereas people that argue against the use of evolutionary psychology say, well, you know, you weren't there millions of years ago or, you know, what, 1.4 million, whatever the, the Pleistocene era was when the first humans started to come out. But a lot of what we understand or, or the, the way that we describe early humans is based on a best guess. And we can't really prove that false so they're they're theories and we try to build more and more evidence to support those theories and it it is on you know the burden of proof is on on the researchers on the scientists that are making those claims but it's also you know it's good for other people to question those claims as well and I think that's part of the 
I guess a, a concern in the science engagement process is that especially the way that we consume science information these days, we don't really question a lot of the information that is presented to us. We kind of, we see a headline, we glance at it. We don't really, we might read the byline, you know, the, the little text underneath the headline just to kind of get an idea of what the article is about. But um, we don't really take the time to go through read the full article, look at the sources, look at where that information came from, some of the background of the study. You know, we, we just don't have time for that because we're in such a, uh, I guess, a, a busy kind of society, so to speak. And there was this example that came out which kind of highlights this problem. So I'm not sure if either of you um, are familiar with these people. So there's this professor, uh, Catherine Hayhoe, and she's in, I'm not sure which university she's at in Texas, but she lives in Texas. And she's really well known for being, um, as, as Mike would say, um, uh, the rock star of climate change communication. So she is a climate scientist and then has done a, a lot in the field of climate change communication. And this came out, there was a, an article that came out last July in the New York Times written by Joseph Stiglitz, my favorite economist. I don't know if you both have a favorite economist, but he's mine. Um, <laughs> So, um, but you know, so Joseph Stiglitz uh, reviewed this book that came out last summer and it was written by a climate change denier. And so, you know, he reviewed the book for accuracy and, and um, you know, talked about what was, what was inaccurate or what was inconsistent with current consensus um, of science. And sorry, I'm getting a phone call. Um, and so, sorry about that. I'll have to edit that out. Um, so he wrote this article and then the New York Times submitted it, um, or printed it. And the way that they wrote the article or the, the headline for the article was, are we overreacting to climate change? Which is obviously clickbait. You know, it, it's raising this question that sounds kind of ridiculous and it, it's com somewhat controversial and, and it would probably grab people's attention that agree and also disagree with that question. Um, and so in response to that article, Catherine Hayhoe wrote this long Twitter feed or Twitter thread and, um, and said, you know, this is really problematic. You shouldn't ever kind of use this type of clickbait, especially when we talk about climate change. Climate change is a very serious issue. And she she goes through and 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 kind of outlines this her frustration with this kind of tactic as a way to get more people to read um, a, an article. And then um, it came out through, you know, people contributing to the thread and replying. Um, apparently this is a strategy used in journalism and media. And so whenever a question like that is used as a headline, the answer is always no. And it, it's based on, um, so I think 
this person, Ian Betteridge, um, he wrote this quote. I think it was, I don't know if he came up with this tactic or if it was something that he just pointed out, but, um, you know, any headline which ends in a question mark can be answered by the word no. The reason why journalists use this style of headline is that they know the story is probably bullshit and don't actually have the sources and facts to back it up, but still want to run it. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's this this way of, of getting more and more people to, to read a story. And given how divisive climate change is, it probably got a lot of clicks just because of the title. I'm so, gonna be honest, you made me want to look up this Joseph Stiglitz. <laughs> Oh, because he's my favorite economist? <laughs> yeah, I wanted to do a quick wiki search on him. <laughs> I, you know, he's got some really great books. I, um, I like the book Free Fall. And then, um, oh, I forget the other, the first book of his that I read. Uh, I just think it, it, he puts things in a really easy to understand way. And um, I just enjoy the writing. And I, I, because I'm interested in economics. So I guess this, this ties into that topic of uh, science literacy. So we, we, we encounter some of these problems when it comes to understanding science communication or, or improving science engagement. And, and so the answer is always, we need to improve science literacy or health literacy or climate literacy or, or um, you know, all of those literacies. And so, it's based on this assumption that if people understand what is happening, they will take action. And so when you think about science communication, if people understand science and understand the science process, then they will support policy and support funding and um, you know all that good stuff. But um, you know, I think that those are some very large assumptions and it, it it doesn't really take into account people's individual interests, um, you know, and as well as their experiences, uh, whether or not they've been told that they're good at science. And a lot of that will play an impact as to whether or not they'll engage with a story or engage with science information. Um, and this, the term science literacy has been so diluted over time. So it, it's, when we talk about literacy, especially when we put it in these contexts of health literacy and science literacy and climate literacy, it's, uh, it kind of starts to mean nothing and everything all at the same time. Uh, and there's a lot of different perspectives. So we'll see, you know, we'll see like a Pew research study or some other survey that says, oh, you know, the American public is incapable of understanding everyday science or recognize the importance of it in their everyday life. Or another survey will say, no, people have the skills to understand scientific concepts, they're just not interested in it. So, you know, we have these different perspectives on why people do or do not engage in scientific information. But what um, Noah Feinstein found was that it really is ensuring that the information you're presenting to people is useful in their everyday life. Um, and, you know, if people are able to solve personally meaningful problems in their lives um, th 
through the use of science or logic and it, it directly affects their material social circumstances and it shapes their behavior and informs their their more significant practical and political decisions and so I think that's a key component that we don't always see when we talk about or when we present scientific information is making it relatable to people in a way that it is useful in their daily life. Because if you think about what was the last last bit of scientific information that you could easily like pinpoint how useful it is to your daily life. I feel like the last thing is probably like something about like the COVID vaccine. Mm-hmm. Maybe. And it was just like a headliner kind of like, oh, is the COVID vaccine even like effective or um, which one's more effective, Pfizer or Moderna or just like things like that that just make you want to like look more into it Mm -hmm. because it does impact you like daily. Yeah. Well, especially right now, but yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, yeah, it's hard to find a lot of stories that are like that. Yeah. So I think that, and that's probably a struggle that a lot of people find in, you know, I mean, there's so much scientific research going on these days that it, it's hard to make those connections. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I always try to emphasize in the classes that I teach is, okay, here's this, in, this topic that you're really interested in, but what does that mean for other people? So just because it appeals to your particular interest, you want to try and make it more relatable to other people. I think going off on that too is like some, a lot of media tends to go like overboard and there's like, you can find all sorts of just crazy science and health, like ideas, like I'm just being funny, but oh, just doing a headstand for 10 seconds, every time you get out of bed, does that improve your, your quality of life or? expand your your lifespan but like i literally i feel like there's no shortage of like type types of uh i get almost like fake like science headlines or potential stories and it's like well because they might they might just still like appeal to the audience it's like or or the general public it's just like they end up kind of becoming popular or there's just like it really we're going to this trend where it's like there's just no shortage of like like real or not, like, like crazy, like science headlines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that ties into a concept, the novelty hypothesis and that, you know, people get a certain level of, of status by sharing novel information, which usually tends to be inaccurate. Um, and people share that more widely and more quickly. So if you see, you know, like something like you just said, Daniel, like standing on your head for five seconds every morning will improve your, your memory or, or your overall daily life. And, you know, people will, will click on that and they'll share it and they'll think it's funny and, and it'll spread across the internet way more quickly than, you know, news of a new scientific study shows that, you know, increasing blood flow helps give you energy, you know, something like that. Um, and it, it does happen a lot. And I think that's probably been um, a trend that we've seen since the advent of, of the internet, especially social media, is that you know we just kind of share things without really looking into it. Um, 
and it, and there's so much demand for content and it's so um it's so easy to share content quickly that it's this increasing pressure so as people are trying to compete or if different media outlets are trying to compete for advertising dollars or or funding this um this pressure to get information out there as quickly as possible, um, it kind of leads to inaccuracies um, and less precise information sharing. And there's this, there's this funny website. Oh, I don't know, but I shouldn't say funny, not funny, haha, but uh, <laughs> interesting. Um, there's a website, it's called Kill or Cure, and it's, um, these people that created the website, they've taken articles from the Daily Mail, which is a, a newspaper in the UK. It's not really a reputable newspaper. It's kind of known for being like a tabloid style newspaper. Um, and so what they do is they take the headlines and they'll, they always report information about a new study in terms of whether or not it it provides a cure to cancer, or it is certain to kill you. And then sometimes it, and they have it split up by, by topic. So they'll have like apples. And so they'll have one story there that says apples cure cancer. Then they'll have one underneath it, apples certain to kill you from cancer. <laughs> but this is a, a way that they are able to ensure that, that people will click on the, on the headline. Um, because they want to know, um, you know, if I what I'm eating is going to hurt me, or if it'll help me, and we've seen that that you know health research and health and and diets and nutrition have kind of gone back and forth about certain foods like coffee and and red meat. So certain years, you know, red meat is bad for you and it will increase your cholesterol, give you cancer and, and all that good stuff. And then other years, no, the protein is great for you. You should only eat protein. And it, again, a lot of it is tied to diet gimmicks and marketing and, and um, other aspects, but they'll, they'll tap into scientific studies that are possibly uncertain, or they might have one instance in a small study where the results show one thing and, and so people will just run with it. So do you think that um, we should start holding like news sources accountable for doing things like this? Or like, do you even think it's possible or do they have so much liberty that they can like put out whatever they want? Um, I don't know. I, I think it would be great to hold news sources accountable but it's, it's not just them. Mm -hmm. So it, it's kind of holding everybody accountable because, you know, a news source might inflate or, or hype up a story to get more readers. Uh, but, you know, the press release that was sent to the media outlet might have also been embellished a little bit. And then what we're also finding is because there is so much, um, just like the number of, of scientific articles that are published this year or each year has increased dramatically. 
um, the there's there's people out there that are finding a lot of inaccuracies in scientific research that are published, um, and that's happening more and more frequently. It's still a small percentage, but you know there's um, like there's a, a person on Twitter, Elizabeth Bick, I think that's her name, and and she'll go through and call out people for their inaccuracies in their their published journal articles oh, and then wow. <laughs> so, so she has a lot of enemies um <laughs> so um so yeah it's and a lot of people don't like to be called out for that and it could be because of the mounting pressure to publish among academia or within academia it could be the pressures that editors and reviewers are under and then the pressures that public relations offices are under and then the the reporters and the media outlets and the pressure that they're under so it's just this huge overall systemic problem <laughs> mm-hmm. i think i think that's why there's probably more people working on some of those digital um you know websites or um you know extensions for your web browser that will kind of seek out the accuracy of the information that's presented to you. So I don't know if you've seen that on Facebook or, um, you know, there's different things that you could attach to your your web browser that will tell you whether or not the web page you're reading is consistent with um, scientific consensus and, and things like that. Yeah, I know that there's even um, a website um, that I use when I, that, um, I think it's called MyBib, and you can just cite articles and also tells you if it's like credible or not credible um, sources. Oh, that's really great. Yeah. I've definitely heard of like MyBib. I've, I've never gotten it to tell me like if it's credible or not, though. It only yeah. cite them for me. Oh yeah, if you, no, I think you're thinking about EasyBib, but if you use MyBib, it you copy and paste the link to the website or the book, and then it's gonna tell you if it's credible or not. Is, is um, that free or do they charge you money? No, it's free. All right. Yeah. Well, that well, a lot of times they'll do this. They'll try and they'll try and like get money out of you somehow. Uh, some of these yeah. like, sources, but that's good that. Yeah, I haven't had a problem. Like I know sometimes you have to watch like ads and stuff like that. I haven't had to do that so. Oh, cool. We'll have to check it out. A free promotion. <laughs> um, I guess just one lingering question was, I forgot to get to this, but earlier you mentioned there's like this big increase in like, like science content being published and released. Well, I just wanted to ask, how is there such an increase? Because I remember one time you were in one of your classes, you talked about the process of getting like a scientific article published and out there and how that's a really tedious and tough process and that can actually take like months, whereas just a regular news story that can be out in like a week. Mm -hmm. So like, I I was just wondering like how these are, how we're seeing like such a huge increase. There's there's a lot more journals out there and there's more open access journals where the, the authors of an article have to pay to publish 
in open access journals. So just because there is so many more individual journals out there, there's just a lot more information being published. They're also ranked differently. So based on your discipline or your field of study, there's high ranking journals and then there's lower ranking journals. So it's typically easier to get published in a lower ranking journal and the review process and the publication process is not as tedious um, or difficult. Whereas if you go for a top tier journal, then your article will be reviewed very rigorously. There will probably be several rounds of revisions um, and a lot of reviewer comments. And it just is a very long process. And, and as somebody who is earlier on in their career, they may um, try to go for the top tier journals just because it, it helps improve their, um, their resume. Um, or, you know, sometimes you kind of, you, you aim for a top journal. If it gets rejected, then you maybe make some revisions and then go for a lower tier journal. And so there's still a lot publishing out there, but in terms of, you know, going to some of the, the higher ranked journals, the, I think the publication rate is something like 3%. It's really like the, for the amount of articles that they receive, um, very few actually get published, but it, it really depends on the, the journal that you go for. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed our discussion about science communication and the engagement process. We are rapidly moving through the topics that I typically cover in my courses on science communication, but soon we will start to discuss concepts on storytelling and stand-up comedy for communicating science. We will also be joined by Cameron again in future episodes. As always, if you have any questions or topics you would like us to cover, let us know via social media. We are at downtoearth underscore pod on Twitter or message us on Instagram at downtoearth.podcast. You can follow the links to the materials we reference and read along on our blog, www.dearprofessor.org backslash blog.